in the Globe, a little comic about uh, somebody in the sitting posture and um, actually sitting, sitting posture looking at the TV. And on the TV it says, the government has advised Americans to remain calm but vigilant. And so she's sitting very calmly like this, <laughs> like, like one eye open. So, hmm. I thought it was worth sharing with a group of meditators. I do think that it's so wonderful that we can be together in this way, um, always, but maybe particularly during this time. Uh, you know, to be in a calm and beautiful environment and to be with one another, you know, to really be with people who um, we feel some sense of like-mindedness with, not that we all share the same views and opinions, not at all. Uh, each, if each one of us were, were direct and, and fearless to speak those opinions, but just the sense of uh, cherishing the inner life, the recognition of there being an inner life and how essential it is to uh, bring attention, bring a clear attention to the inner life and perhaps some sense of how important it is in the world, you know, each one of us being essential and bringing our minds, our hearts, our bodies to this world. So just to begin by appreciating all of us together. I want to read a very, very well-known poem to begin with. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time of love and a time of hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Beautiful as that poem is, I think it really speaks so much about the changing nature of things. That we may say, I only think there should be this. I only think there should be planting. I only think there should be love. I only think there should be peace. And this is a wonderful ideal to have. And I'm sure we all share these ideals. And at the same time, when we look to see, we notice that there are other times as well. And that if we can recognize this sense of time, in other words, that everything is changing, then perhaps there's a way that we can find and participate in and offer one another more peace. Looking at the ways that we resist impermanence, resist the 
law of nature, which is that everything is changing from moment to moment. And seeing if we can bring awareness, attentiveness to the times when we resist so that we're not completely stuck in or lost in um, defensiveness or resistance or rigidity, but so that there's a way that we can continue to learn from our experiences. A way that we can continue to look deeply, this, this kind of commitment that we may have to look deeply into how things are, whatever season it may be, and however which way we want things to be. Is it possible to soften, see, be present, and learn through this law of impermanence? Impermanence is not at all a doctrine. It's not like the Buddha made it up and said, everybody better believe in impermanence or, you know, uh, or else. Really, it's very much something that each one of us sees when we look quite deeply. Now, we can see it in superficial ways and we can see it in really strong ways. Sometimes when one talks about impermanence, um, one wants to spend an awful lot of time pointing it out, you know, impermanence lies here, impermanence lies there, that kind of thing. But I think um, probably most of us thought that the towers, the World Trade Center towers, would probably survive us, would would last, would outlast our our lifetime, even if we didn't give it much thought, which I'm sure we didn't. But just the assumption that they were so steady and stable and big, um, how could they crumble? How could they fall apart? So I actually don't want to spend a whole lot of time pointing it out a little bit, um, but not a whole lot of time because I think that impermanence is perhaps clearer for us during this time. Now, how we work with it may not be clear. How we come to peace with it, come to terms with it, may not be clear. Um, Kind of the nuances and subtleties might not be clear. But perhaps right now for everyone in the world, there's a little bit more of a sense of how impermanent, even that which looks so permanent, so obviously substantial and stable, actually is not. And we we realize, I think collectively, there's been this kind of gasp or shock, sense of shock. And this shock, of course, is human and, and natural. And yet at the same time, we don't want to live there. It's not a place to live. It's not a place to dwell. It's a place to move on from and see if we can see (coughs) impermanence as something that we can really use as a a Dharma doorway. Uh, The word Dharma means truth, so kind of a doorway into a deeper truth. And, of course, our practice is not just to come to truth, but it's truth that... Um, really does lead to a greater sense of understanding and compassion and loving kindness and joy. Joy that really is enduring. You know, when, I, when, I ha- when this happened, um, you know, when the trade centers fell, I, um, I was thinking about the heavenly messengers. Uh, in the uh, story of the Buddha, as most of you know, the story is that the Buddha lived in a great deal of luxury and um, 
everything seemingly it's a myth so you know it wasn't probably quite as delightful as pictured but everything seemingly was done for him and he was protected quite protected maybe in a way the way some of us here have been protected certainly not those who have been subjected to racism and violence and oppression certainly not having been protected but perhaps perhaps this country as a whole there's been a sense of protection kind of as a as a collective mind state that we've been somewhat protected and so in a sense you know leaving the palace the Buddha left the palace um, this kind of sense of feeling I think right now extraordinarily unprotected and the story of the Buddha is that he came upon what are called the four heavenly messengers when he left the palace first of all he came upon someone who was sick that (coughs) somehow he'd been protected from seeing sickness or being in contact with sickness in his life in the palace he came in contact with a person that was old don't ask me how this happened but somehow he was protected from um, being around people who were very very old and he also bumped into a corpse he also saw a corpse somebody who had died by the side of the road so these are the three heavenly messengers uh, sickness old age and death and then he came upon the fourth heavenly messenger which was that of a practitioner just like you and I he came upon a practitioner someone who was seeking the truth and because of seeking the truth and not wanting to live a superficial and imprisoned life the face was radiant so he came upon a radiant being and this is said to be a heavenly messenger as well and really is what (coughs) propelled the Buddha out of the palace he couldn't go back it was not possible to go back Um, we can't go back there's no going back it's not possible to go back so when the Buddha left the palace and saw these heavenly messengers he saw in a way what happens with all human beings not just some but really just what is true for all human beings and as well he saw a way out he saw a path he saw that it is possible to practice and to come to some degree of freedom perhaps a profound level of freedom and as well it is possible to share our freedom with others and so influence the world I mean when we think about the Buddha 2,600 years later here we are in a Buddhist center you know not not to identify with being a Buddhist or to be sectarian in any which way there's so many paths Um, and the Buddha this person the Buddha from so long ago 2,600 years ago having such a huge influence on the world because of following a path because of taking these heavenly messengers seriously but not falling into depression and resignation and anger and entitlement and you know I should be the only one not subject to these things instead using these heavenly messengers as invitations to wake up and then of course with the fourth heavenly messenger seeing that something else was possible for the human being 
I think that um, something that is clearly happening that happened to the Buddha that's happening perhaps for all of us as well to varying degrees is that when this happened for the Buddha when he left the palace and started to wake up he saw that his priorities were all askew you know that what he had valued in life um, you know there's lots of stories lolling around in pleasure and you know um, lots of stories about about the Buddha's time before he left the palace but obviously when there was this time of seeing uh, things more starkly more clearly more vividly there was a reordering of his priorities and perhaps that's what is happening for us as well you know some sense of finding out what is most significant for us what is most important what is a true way to live in this world if we do die in this next moment which was true a month ago as much as it's true today nothing is really different if we were to die right now could we die without any regrets in other words are our priorities the ones that we want to live or is our life in line with whatever our values and priorities are and and this is this is a a, a wake up an invitation I mean if not this is a great time to begin to reflect and to take those steps that are necessary and to sit I mean to sit to really practice the sitting um, to really practice the contemplative life with a little bit more uh, commitment maybe for some of us a lot more commitment but anyway highlighting or lighting up our life using this as a way to highlight or light up our life the Buddha was said to be Wahula Rahula Wapola Rahula that's two names Um, I'm sure he'll forgive me Uh, said something I, I think is very good he said that the Buddha was neither an optimistic person nor a pessimistic person. He was a realistic person. So not the half, the, the glass being half empty or the glass being half full, which we can sort of divide ourselves into, you know, whether we're optimists or pessimists because of our conditioning and childhood and personality. But instead, aiming towards seeing things clearly, you know, again following the path of the Buddha which is that of realism a realistic approach to life with the understanding that if we try to delude ourselves that anything other than that which is true is true it is going to be unstable and fragile and it is going to fall apart and perhaps we all know that a little bit more right now There is a difference between views and opinions and um, and facts in life, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about views and opinions in this discussion about reflections on impermanence, because I think right now, with the way things are, with the attack on September 11th, and with the bombing that has been occurring, and um, with the anthrax and, and this and, and that it's very very kind of um, opinions and views are running rampant 
is, is maybe how I say it. You know? I mean, that lots of views and opinions and lots of attachment to views and opinions. Yeah? I mean, you could say that there's no problem with views and opinions in and of themselves. And there is, I think, a huge problem with the attachment to views and opinions because when we're attached to our view, my view, my opinion, then there is going to be some degree and maybe a lot, we could see this in the world at large, you know, a huge degree, but maybe just to talk about us, there is going to be some degree of conflict or difficulty or suffering or irritation. You know? And so this is the very same mind that we see in the world. Can we see it in ourselves? You know, can we take responsibility for when it's not just a view or an opinion? when there really is a heaviness behind it or an attachment behind it. And we think everybody else obviously is wrong. No? I mean, we're, we're nice people. We're polite. And so we might not uh, show it, you know, or we might not jump up and down. And we might actually have the same kind of nice face you know, or pleasant face. We've been trained well, many of us. And yet inside, you know, that, that sense of, oh my God, how could they think that? <laughs> and that's, that's really what we want to bring some attention to. Because you know, it really does, as we know, lead to inner conflict, if not separation between me and you, if not an inner sense of conflict and separation. In the practice, we're replacing our attachment to views and opinions with wisdom. And the only way we can do that is through being aware and mindful. Being mindful means being in contact with things as they are from moment to moment. And out of mindfulness comes the natural emergence of wisdom. You could say wisdom is seeing things clearly as they are which is very, very different than a view and an opinion, where there may indeed be a partial seeing. Usually there is. Usually there is. It's not totally distorted. There's a partial seeing that maybe each one of us has. But it's not the whole reality. I mean, how could it be? We don't even have all the information we need to, even on the relative level, have a fully educated view and opinion. So, to look at whether we can notice the attachment and work with it differently. I would also say that, you know, there, there, this is kind of a time of um, feeling <coughs> perhaps that one always has to be the one who, who knows, you know, how things are. Maybe um, people are asking you as the meditator that they know, or um, I don't know. Or maybe just one has it in oneself that one has to be right or always has to hold down a certain perspective or line or you know, has to be the one who knows. And I would really encourage and suggest that one let that go. Now, so much more um, room and freedom is possible um, you know, in not having to be the one who knows. And I'm not at all saying not to write letters if one wants to or you know, uh, this or that. But, you know, there also is this reality that no one is calling us up to find out what to do. You know? I mean, Bush is not calling us. Um, you know, Ashcraft is not giving us a call to find out what should I do right now. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're being left out. And so 
<laughs> and certainly we can participate. I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting not participating in, in a way that we can find. But to think, you know, to be under the delusion that we have to know, I think this is, this is not so great because what it's really actually doing is covering up feelings and emotions of hopelessness, of helplessness. You know? We feel helpless. We feel like we don't know what to do. There's so many different pieces, and this is such an enormously complex situation, that we don't know what to do. You know? And can that be all right? Is it possible to live with a don't-know mind rather than the illusion that we do so that we don't have to feel helpless? You know? I mean, of course, our practice points us towards being aware of whatever it is that's happening. So if feelings of helplessness are occurring, we can be aware and mindful of those feelings of helplessness rather than covering them up by thinking that we have to know. Now, and I also would suggest that there's just maybe a little bit of grandiosity in, um, in thinking that we know, you know, in having to be the one who knows. That could well be let go of as well. You know, when, when we're talking to people and... Um, one says, we, we hear the other person saying something that, yes, it does make sense to us, and yet there's so much force and power behind it that we know there's something else going on as well. Um, that's what we can see in ourselves, too, you know, is, is having a view and an opinion that's fine, you know, neither here nor there, fine. But then, what's behind it? What's propelling it? Where is the torment of heart being revealed to one? Can we see where the fuel is? Can we see what is extra? In other words, can we see where the attachment lies? Keeping our minds open about around what we think we know so that we can be more available and actually see more clearly. And some of what this means is learning how to live in the mystery. Learning how to live in suchness. Learning how to live within openness and availability so that we're more ready to do whatever it is that is needed so that it is possible to respond with more wisdom and compassion instead of simply to react out of a personal agenda, whatever that personal agenda may be. The Buddha said, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. I was um, speaking about this the other day, about views and opinions, and after speaking about it, someone came up to me and said, well, um, you know, yes, there are views and opinions, and are there any facts? You know, things that absolutely are are definitely true. Forget about resting in the mystery. What's true? So I thought that was a, actually, you know, a very very good question, and so I came up with a very small list of facts. Um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, um, presuming that it's complete, but I do have a, a small list of facts here. Now, facts would mean Laws of nature. That's what a fact would mean. Yeah? A fact would mean a law of nature that every human being can agree upon. Well, maybe every human being doesn't see it, so one can't agree if you don't see it. But 
to know that it's possible for all human beings to see and to experience and I guess I would also say be subject to laws of nature whether we know it or not. So that's what I would call a fact is a law of nature. One law of nature is that adding hatred to hatred causes more hatred. The Buddha said that this law is ancient and inexhaustible. I, I love that way of putting it, ancient and inexhaustible. That we think when there's a conflict, if we add more conflict to it, then somehow it'll be resolved. No, not so. Not so. We may see this in our in our life in relationship. You know, we, we we get upset, something's wrong, and so if we get more upset, somehow it'll be resolved. It doesn't doesn't seem so. No. So adding hatred to hatred doesn't doesn't bring about resolution. Yeah. Only bringing in loving kindness. Something different, something softening can allow hatred to melt. Um, I would also just, just mention the precept of not harming, you know, not destroying life. This is the first of the Buddhist precepts. So what, how I would um, kind of phrase this as, as a law of nature is that in harming, there is going to be harm done to oneself. No. I mean, just, just the law of karma. Um, I kind of want to interrupt myself for one moment around here, this though, just mentioning the word karma. Um, just kind of during this time, every so often, I've heard people say, oh, it's just karma, or it's karma, or, you know, something like that. And um, I, I think it's so important to recognize that what the Buddha said is that there are so many causes and conditions that bring about a particular consequence. So yes, of course, it is karma. Obviously, it's karma. But none of us can know what all the particular causes and conditions are. The Buddha said the mind would burst if one thought about what the causes and conditions are. And I think because oftentimes we want to be the one who knows or you know, or a one who knows, maybe not so cocky as the one who knows, but you know, among the knowing, <laughs> that um, sometimes we, we rest too quickly, you know, this is why, or this is why, or this is why. And then we build up a case around it. And then we try to, to make others agree with us in some way, or we get really upset when, when they don't. You know? But to recognize that so many causes and conditions have to come together for there to be a particular consequence, I think this allows us to view things with a greater sense of both wisdom, because we're seeing more accurately rather than this is it, or that's it, or anything like that. But also, I think, with a deeper, more authentic level of compassion. And we all want to be compassionate, but how does that actually operate in our daily life? Well, one, one way that it might operate is that compassion is more possible when we're not coming down in one particular way on one particular fact, but we're allowing ourselves to be open and to see as much as possible of it all, of it all. Um, I would also say that a fact, a law of nature, is that of impermanence. That things do change, that um, friends become enemies, enemies become friends. We can see this in in our personal life, certainly that we were friends with somebody that now we're having difficulty with. Um, We were not 
friendly with someone and now they're our best friend. I'm sure all of us have had experiences like this. And we can see it, of course, in the world as well. That um, when, when I was young, well, it's still true, my father was born in Russia whether I was young or not. <laughs> and it still remains a fact. <laughs> but when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't great to be born in Russia. Um, kids would, um, would tease me and say, oh, you know, your father's communist. You must be communist too. It was something that wasn't so romantic as, as it, it, I don't know if it's romantic today, but I went through a little phase of thinking it was romantic anyway. But... Um, Anyway, you know, it really, it, Russia really was an enemy. And now it's a little bit different. You know? Now it's a little bit different. And who, who would have thought that would happen? Of course it was going to be that way. You know, so we, we can see how we're, we're kind of uh, think things are going to be permanent. Right? And yet things change. With people who are in power, you know, we can see um, Hitler, an enormous amount of power, and then, of course, kills himself. You know? I mean, unhappy ending. You know? Nelson Mandela... You know, in prison for so long, and then comes out of prison, comes out of prison, and transforms a culture, transforms a country. You know, actually has a huge effect on the world, not just one country, as we know. Most of us have been greatly inspired by him. So change, you know, change always occurring. Impermanence always occurring. You could say that in terms of this particular situation, you know, this is a country where we do use a lot of the world's resources. That seems to be maybe something we could agree upon. Um, you know, not, not like how much or how little, but just, just we use a lot of the world's resources. That's not going to remain stable. It just can't. You know? It's just not possible. When there is gain, there's also loss. When there is loss, there's also gain. You know? I mean, things change. Loss turns into gain. Gain turns into loss. Mm-hmm. And I would also say that it can be compassion to stop someone from causing harm. No. Just to be complete about this. I don't, it isn't usually because there are usually other factors operating. And there's self-centeredness and there's anger and there's revenge. But certainly it can be compassion to stop someone who is causing harm. So I would say that that's a fact as well. So I'm at the end of my facts here. I didn't really come up with that many, but... Um, there is something called sanya vipalasa, which means distortions of perception. And what this means is, over and over again, we think we're deluded and we think that that which is impermanent is actually permanent. We're deluded and we think that that which um, is actually not going to lead to, hap- to lasting happiness is actually satisfactory. We're deluded and we think that that which we think has substance actually has no substance, is empty or fluid. So these are called the three distortions of, um, of perception, ways that we perceive not fully or wrongly and suffer as a consequence. When we believe the impermanent to be permanent, we think things will always be this way. We think things are not supposed to be this way. And that's where resistance enters in. I wish things were the way they were. And there's resistance. We think I will always feel this way, whatever particular way we feel in the moment. 
we can see this for ourselves. We can see and challenge the ways that we think something is permanent that is not by sustaining our attention from moment to moment. The reason we don't see impermanence all the time with conditioned phenomena is because generally we kind of pop out in the middle of things. You know, we're spaced out and then we realize that something is existing and then we space out again and we don't see that it's gone. So sustaining the attention on our experience, on our life, on all things in life allows us to see the beginning, the arising, as well as the existence, the life, as well as the dying away, the passing away, um, the disappearance. So this is where concentration comes in so handy because if we can sustain our attention with wisdom, you know, with kind of an angle of wisdom, of wanting to learn, of wanting to see more clearly, then each one of us will see impermanence quite clearly in terms of seeing the arising, the middle, and the passing away. And of course, in seeing impermanence more clearly, we also can see that when we cling, when we hold on, when we grasp at, there will be some degree of suffering. There will be simply because it's already leaving us. We're in the middle of it and it's already leaving us. This does not at all mean that connection is not possible, that love is not possible, because this is what mindfulness brings us into more, is the realm of connection, the realm of loving kindness, the realm of compassion and joy. So this is not negating that in any which way. But it is saying that whatever is conditioned is going to fall apart. Conditioned phenomena, whatever has been created, also will disappear at some point or another. Impermanence um, sometimes seems to be kind of uh, alienating and isolating and, um, you know, very, very sad. But also, impermanence is quite connecting and it applies to all beings, whatever the status, whatever the power whatever the education, whatever one's finances are, however much one thinks one has, however little one thinks one has, impermanence always applies. And it's also, as I said before, it's a dharma doorway. It's a way into seeing things more clearly. I want to read to you the parable of the mustard seed. Gotami was her family name. But because she tired easily, she was called Kisa Gotami, or Frail Gotami. She was reborn, she was born as Svati in a poverty-stricken house. When she grew up, she married and gave birth to a son. When her child was old enough to play and run around, he died. Sorrow sprang up within her. Taking her son on her hip, she went about from one house door door by door, saying, Give me medicine for my son. Whenever people encountered her, they said, Where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? She didn't have the slightest idea of what she meant because her mind was so unclear and and sorrowful. Now a certain kind man saw her and thought, This woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But medicine for her, no one else is likely to know. The Buddha alone is likely to know. So he said to her, As for medicine for your son, 
The Buddha resides at a neighboring monastery. Go to him and ask. This person speaks the truth, she thought. Taking her dead son on her hip, she took her stand in the outer circle of the congregation around the seated Buddha and said, O exalted one, give me medicine for my son. The Buddha, seeing that she was ripe for understanding, said, You did well, Gotami, in coming here for medicine. Go enter the city, make the rounds of the entire city, beginning at the beginning, and in whatever house no one has ever died, from that house fetch tiny grains of mustard seed. Very well, reverend sir, she said. Delighted in heart, she entered the city. And at the very first house, she knocked on the door and she said, The Buddha bids me fetch tiny grains of mustard seed for medicine for my son. Please, please give me some mustard seed. Ah, Gotami, said they, and brought and gave it to her. But she said, This particular seed I cannot take. In this house someone has died. What are you saying, Gotami? Here it is impossible to count the dead. Well then, I can't take it. The Buddha did not tell me to take mustard seed from a house where anyone has ever died. In the same way, she went to the second house and to the third and to the fourth. Finally, she understood. In the entire city, this must be the way. The Buddha, full of compassion for the welfare of beings, must have seen. Overcome with emotion, she went outside of the city, carried her son to the burning ground, and holding him in her arms, said, Dear little son, I thought that you alone had been overtaken by this thing, which people call death. But you are not the only one death has overtaken. This is a law common to all beings. So saying, she put her son down, and she said this, No village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds of gods, this only is the law, that all things are impermanent. And then the um, ending of this, which actually I'm not reading, is that not only did she come to a resolution, she also woke up. She also woke up. And this is how impermanence can be a Dharma door. By seeing in deeply, by understanding deeply that we're not, you know, we're not, it's not an isolated situation. It's something that actually can connect us as human beings rather than separate us, rather than isolate us. If there is kindness, if there is inner kindness extended toward oneself, if there is outer kindness extended towards others, if we're receptive to kindness and if we're willing to offer kindness, then kindness accompanying the insight into impermanence bodes well. So the Buddha said, Whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. We see that everything is impermanent and that if we cling, we suffer. This doesn't matter. This has to do whatever our preferences may be, whatever our ideas or our opinions may be. We see that things change. It's not personal. In seeing impermanence, what comes about is a certain degree of disenchantment disenchantment with that which we thought was so fascinating and so interesting and so vital to life, you know, so, so essential for life. I think something um, that I've been reading about that I think is happening right now has been a little bit of, of a puncture into um, the kind of the celebrity culture, you know, this kind of thing about um, people being heroes who are simply acting 
or um, simply throwing a ball or, um, you know, um, this idea of making someone bigger than life um, for this or that, which is quite superficial. <coughs> this kind of, kind of culture of the celebrity being so interesting and, um, and important. And it seems like that's changing, you know, that there's, there's a little bit more in terms of the world, a little bit more insight into the total unimportance of, um, of appearance or of glamour or of, you know, things that so obviously change so quickly, you know, so quickly. In our experiences, what sometimes happens when we perceive the permanence in that which is impermanent is that we have an experience and then we cling to one moment out of that experience. So we're there, we're present, we're alive, we're with things as they are, and then we get stuck. And one particular moment kind of, you know, is stronger or heavier or more cloudy. And so it kind of sticks up and we attach to it. And then we make it into the way the entire experience has been. We put a label on it. You know, that was a good experience, that was a bad experience, that was a terrible experience, that was a wonderful experience, that really went well, that really went terribly. You know? And then we react to that label. You know? We put a label on it, and then we react to that label. You know? And when we do that, we find ourselves out of the moment, out of the present, and you could say out of reality. Because the whole idea in living in the present moment is that it happens to be reality. You know? It's not like just a training or just a good idea or anything like that. It happens to be here. It happens to be all that we can know or count on or, or find refuge in is the here and now. Life is composed of moments. You know, sometimes one may be sitting and you know, noticing that the mind has not been present for a long time, so you come back. But you know, you realize that where you've been has been a whole lot more interesting than, <laughs> than here. And so you think, oh, why is it so important to be present? You know, I can do it, I can do it in an hour. I can do it next retreat. You know, I'm thinking about a retreat to come, so I can put it off until then. You know, why is it so important when there's this really wonderful other place that I can bring my mind to? Yeah. And, you know, the reason is because Life is composed of moments. This is it. This is the only moment that we know. This is the only moment where any creativity can occur. I'm not at all suggesting that we not learn from our past experiences because we need to learn from our past experiences. And we have to. That's, you know, an aspect of wisdom. And I'm not at all suggesting, you know, wise preparation and planning for the future because this is necessary as well. Although what we call planning is usually not planning. You know, I mean, usually it's obsessing and worrying. And, you know, I mean, if you plan more than once, it's clinging. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good kind of test of whether you're really planning or not. But to be present is to be aware that what we have is this moment. Yeah? That life is only composed of moments. Yeah? When we look back on our life or when we look forward we can have these descriptions about how my life has been or how my life will be and it's only a description that's all it is is a description and every time we do that we forget that life is happening only right here and now 
So every time we remember and reground ourselves in the present moment, we are regrounding ourselves in reality rather than making a home in delusion. We see impermanence very much operating on the level of thoughts and emotions as well as the seasons changing and material phenomena breaking up and um, things that I've been speaking about. But we also see it in terms of our own bodies and our own minds, our own emotions and our own thoughts changing from moment to moment. And we can find ourselves very easily lost in reactivity. Oh, you know, maybe all the time, but particularly perhaps right now, lost in reactivity. Can we look carefully, meditatively, from moment to moment into fear? Can we be aware of helplessness? Can we be aware from moment to moment of anxiety, of anger? Is it possible to bring this law of impermanence into our inner life and to look at our inner life more fully and with greater commitment. So it means there's a thought coming and going. There's a feeling that generally occurs out of that thought. You know, one maybe reads something and then there's a feeling that comes in because of that. Is it possible to be aware of fear on a moment-to-moment level? Not this is solid. This is the way things are going to be. You know, and then all the reasons why perhaps one should be afraid. Is it possible to be aware of the changing nature of emotions? The changing nature of that which sometimes appears to be permanent and valid and justifiable. Is it possible to see it as a cloud passing over the heart? And to not forget to look at the heart, to look at the sun, to look at the sky, but as well to recognize the cloud-like nature of fear, the cloud-like nature of helplessness, of anxiety. Um, Buddha Dasa, who um, I was with in Thailand for a little bit, um, talks about how working with your own experience, you know, kind of the commitment to see the impermanent nature of fear and anger and greed and delusion and confusion, etc., 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 that this is a public health measure. <laughs> it's a public health measure because when we're caught by fear, when we're locked into or overwhelmed by anger or irritation, and something I've kind of noticed is that um, during this time I've sort of, I've kind of noticed that whatever a person's strongest torment of heart is, it's coming out a little stronger. Kind of whatever the the tendency or strongest bent is, it's coming out a little stronger. And I think it's it's really important as well to look at whether one is getting upset about things that don't matter at all, little tiny things that don't matter, to see if there's kind of that oversensitivity, to see how much we're getting um, diluted and lost. So is it possible to work with our own hearts, with our, with our own minds, as a public health measure, meaning that we're not only finding freedom within ourselves, we're also able to offer to others. Because out of this comes calmness and clarity. You know, living a life that is calm as well as clear and steady and stable. <coughs> 
when we are lost in a mind state, when we do think it's impermanent, it's permanent, we tend to disconnect from our bodies. You know? We tend to leave our bodies. Anybody else's body will do, but not our own. And to practice being in the body is really, really helpful because sometimes you can see impermanence more clearly in terms of sensations. You know, the stomach is tight. Ah, you know, with awareness, it changes, it softens. The heart is beating. Then, you know, one moves on. The heart is not beating any longer. There's pressure in the chest. Ah, you know, um, one has to answer the phone. The pressure in the chest eases. If we can bring attention to the body to notice the changing nature of sensations in the body, this is a great way to work with mind states as well with reactions. In working with the mind in relationship to fear, to be aware of the present moment and that so many of our fears have to do with that which is not happening right now. So much of our fear has to do with dread, that which we think is going to happen, that which maybe we're totally convinced is going to happen but is not happening right now. Many years ago, my first retreat at, a, at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, I was, um, I was in a room and um, I realized it was in a room and it was dark and everybody was sleeping. And all of a sudden I realized that um, there were no locks on the door of my room and nobody else's door either, of course. And then I also realized that there was no lock on the front door you know, of the whole building. Of course, it's out in the country, so one doesn't need locks and nothing really has happened there. Take out the really, nothing has happened there. But I was very, very frightened and was sitting there very contracted. And I was also thinking, you know, there's this rule about how you can't, you can't talk. So I was very, taking it very literal, my, literally my first retreat. So I was thinking, oh, no, if something happened, I couldn't even tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't even scream, let alone not tell anybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm supposed to be quiet. So this was another <laughs> level of the, um, of the fear that was arising. But at some point, um, you know, wisdom happened uh, without even asking for it. And I just realized that nothing was happening in that moment. Nothing was happening. Yeah? Nothing was happening. So I thought I might as well just go to sleep and, you know, <laughs> let it be a surprise if, if something did. But so much of the time we live in dread. We live in fear of the future. When probably whatever it is that happens, if we're in the present moment, we'll bring our resources together. We'll work with it. With whatever resources we've gathered up to that point. But when we are focused on dread or lost in dread, we do think whatever it is that is that we're afraid of is going to last forever. We think the dread will last forever. And we find ourselves quite afraid of the unknown. So a way to gracefully work with this is to, over and over again, see if it's possible to soften into the present moment. Over and over again, see if it's possible to let go, to relax, to be more at ease in the present moment. The practice of meditation allows us to see impermanence more clearly. Impermanence itself is both tragic as well as transformative. Both are true as well as undeniably ordinary and insignificant at times as well. But at, at its ends, 
tragic as well as transformative. Tragic in that we lose what we love. We lose people that are close to us. Transformative. I remember some years ago um, in Cambridge, a, a gourmet store burned to the ground and someone commented by saying that it was tragic. And I thought, this isn't tragic. You know, it's a store that's burned to the ground. Um, I don't know. My definition of tragedy, somebody has to die um, for it to be tragic. You know? I mean, I feel the same way when I go to a comedy and somebody dies. I think this is not a comedy if someone dies in it. But anyway, tragic as well as transformative. Obviously, if we can um, live in harmony with impermanence, that is how things change. Without impermanence, everything <coughs> is static. There is no possibility to cultivate loving kindness. There's no possibility to grow in freedom, to really be able to see the luminosity of heart if there is no impermanence. So it's both ends. It's tragic and at the same time, it's what allows us as human beings to be human, really human beings, real human beings, living lives of great kindness and clarity. And I think that in the awareness of impermanence, there is such a greater sense of the preciousness of what is around us, of the people that we're already connected with, Um, a greater sense of connectedness, perhaps, with the world, a greater sense of, of the fragility also leads us to a greater sense of, of preciousness, of preciousness in this particular moment. Um, a long time ago, I was um, officiating at a wedding, and um, uh, right at the end, of, now, wedding is such a happy occasion, right? I mean, this was a happy occasion. And um, uh, someone, they asked a friend of theirs to sing, and the person who sang, sang this one line hauntingly over and over again. And the one line was, only for a short while are we loaned to one another. Well, only for a short while are we loaned to one another. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, you know, <laughs> this is a real Vipassana wedding. <laughs> but it's, it was also quite wonderful. You know, also quite wonderful because it was the beauty as well as the poignancy right in the very same place. Not having to have only beauty, only loveliness, you know, without the awareness of poignancy, without the awareness of no, none of us ever knowing how much time we have other than the present moment. So I was very struck and, and moved by that. In seeing impermanence, more and more clearly if we're going in uh, the right direction, the direction of harmony, of of happiness, of joy, there is more love and kindness and patience that gradually develops, comes into view for us. We find that we develop an enormous interest in seeing more more deeply. All of us in this room have an interest in seeing deeply. As our insight grows and develops, perhaps we develop even more of an interest in seeing more deeply. Because, for instance, in seeing impermanence, we see how much we cling to things being a certain way, staying a certain way, having to be a certain way. And in seeing impermanence, 
seeing that the clinging, the impermanence, is just the way things are. doesn't matter what we think about it. It's how things are. But the clinging is where we have a great deal of power. In seeing the holding, in seeing the clinging, in seeing the ways that we're out of harmony, out of sync with the flow of life, with things flowing, changing, being fluid, and seeing ourselves as part of that flow, (coughs) we develop this great interest in living a life of harmony and of offering this harmony to others using the tool of letting go over and over again letting go and sensing a greater connection within ourselves and in relationship to all beings in doing so we do discover that which is not subject to causes and conditions to change Um, I want to read a couple of things um Okay. Well, I think I'll read this first. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. When uh, this arising and passing away itself passes away, there is true happiness. And what this means is that in discovering luminosity of heart, in discovering that which already is free, already is whole, seeing what is clouding the radiance or luminosity of heart in letting go of that which is clouding you know we do see we do come in contact with the clear skies of the mind the clear space within the heart so you know you could say impermanence is impermanent that's a good way to end um <laughs> but let me let me read one more thing Okay, I think I'll read this. This is um, uh, Ajahn Chah. If all is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless, then what is the point of existence? One person watches a river flow by. If he does not wish it to flow, to change ceaselessly in accord with its nature, he will suffer great pain. Another man understands that the nature of the river is to change constantly, regardless of his likes and dislikes, and therefore he does not suffer. To know existence as this flow, (coughs) empty of lasting pleasure, void of self, is to find that which is stable and free of suffering, to find true peace in the world. Then, some people may ask, what is the meaning of life? Why are we born? I cannot tell you. Why do you eat? You eat so that you do not have to eat anymore. You are born so that you will not have to be born again. To speak about the true nature of things, their voidness or emptiness, is difficult. Having heard the teachings, one must develop the means to understand. Why do we practice? If there is no why, then we are at peace. Sorrow cannot follow the one who practices like this. Being attached to body, we will be attached to mind. Being attached to mind, we will be attached to body. We must cease to believe our minds. Use the precepts and calming of the heart to develop restraint and constant mindfulness. Then you will see happiness and displeasure arising and not follow either, realizing that all mental states are impermanent. Learn to be still. In this stillness will come the true joy of the Buddha. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in freedom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.